royal visits are fairly customary for those of us who live in the British Commonwealth. Last year, for example, the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge arrived in Vancouver and arrived in the midst of great pageantry and fanfare. They were met by dignitaries, by the Governor-General and uh, the Prime Minister and the Premier of BC. They received a National Guard of Honor, a 21-gun salute. When they traveled along the route, they were cheering supporters. And at the BC legislature, thousands gathered, some as early as 5 o'clock in the morning, just to catch a glimpse of the royal couple and their children. And today I want to bring before you another royal visit, but one of greater consequence, one described by Luke in chapter 19, verse 28 to 48. In a sense, this is a bridging passage, Luke 19, 28 to 48, because here the travel narrative which began in chapter 9 of Luke, comes to an end. That to a large extent, if we are to understand something of the structure of the Gospel of Luke, we must understand that Luke used this, this motif of a journey. Jesus Christ sets his face towards Jerusalem. All that he does is heading towards Jerusalem and ultimately to the cross. And so you find that there is this journey narrative. But here, in chapter 19, 28 and following, Jesus finally comes to Jerusalem. This passage then encloses the travel narrative. And it prefaces the passion of our Lord. Because the events that are described here take place at the beginning of the week of passion, the last week in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when you read these stories, you find that there are three stories that are told here. First, the story of what we now describe as a triumphal entry in verse 28 to verse 40. Then there's a second story, the story of Jesus' lament over Jerusalem in verses 41 to 44. And then there is a third story of our Lord's cleansing of the temple and teaching in the temple in verses 45 and all the way to 48. Now at first blush, when you approach the text, it does appear that these narratives are disconnected, that they have nothing in common, that Luke has simply strung together a group of stories without any coherence. But that is only at first blush, because these stories form part of a whole. They have together one major theme, and the theme is essentially the theme that Jesus Christ is King. It is a theme that runs throughout the gospel, a theme that began in chapter 1 when the angel appeared to Mary and said, 
that her son, the son that she would bring, will be called the, the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. Now you may say, well, there's no kingship there. The word king is not there. But who sits on thrones? It's a king. And Luke then begins by referring to Christ as king. He will sit on the throne of his father David. And Jesus came preaching, Luke tells us, the gospel of the kingdom of God, the reign of God. A reign which he envisioned has come, has come in his person. He brings the reign of God. This kingship theme runs as a scarlet thread throughout this gospel. Even in chapter 19, in the episode that comes before verse 28, the parable of the pound, Jesus speaks of a noble man who goes into a far kingdom to receive a crown and gives his servants their tasks, each a pound. The noble man here is envisioned as Jesus Christ. He's the king. So here Jesus now comes to Jerusalem. So we see these three stories that are coherent. They are leading us to this theme of Christ as king. What we want to do, however, is to look at these three stories and to look at their distinctive contribution to the kingship of Jesus. We shall consider them in the order in which they appear. First of all, our Lord's entry into Jerusalem in verses 28 to 40 identifies him as the anticipated king who is worthy of praise. All of the four Gospels record Christ's entry into Jerusalem. But Luke is using it here to make clear that the one who comes is king. Yes, Herod was on the throne. Tiberius was in Rome. But Jesus is the true king. How does Luke teach us? First of all, he shows us in three ways in verses 4, 48, 28 to 40, 40, that our Lord Jesus Christ is king. First, he teaches us that Jesus exercises royal prerogative. He acts as a king. He tells us, in fact, begins with a geographical detail. Jesus is coming from the area of Bethany, about two miles away from Jerusalem. He's coming from the area of Bethpage, the same locale. And he tells us that it is, this is in the area of Mount Olivet, the same mount where the Lord often met with the disciples, the same mount from which he ascended into heaven. And he's coming then from the east, coming into Jerusalem. And before the Lord arrives in Jerusalem, he sends two of his disciples into a nearby village, perhaps Bethpage. And he instructs them to go there where they will find a colt, a young donkey that no one has ever ridden, and take it to him. And the Lord gives them specific instruction as to what they are to say if they are to be challenged. If someone were to ask them, why are you losing the donkey? He's to tell, they're to tell them, the Lord has need of him. And that is exactly what occurred. 
when they went into the village and loosed the donkey, the owner challenged them and they responded, the Lord has need of him. It is important to note that Jesus identifies himself as the Lord, a statement of his royalty. But more than that, the fact that he co-ops the use of the donkey shows that our Lord considers that he has absolute right to the creature. And the reason he can simply send the disciples for the donkey it is because he's the Lord of all creation. The Lord thing in creation, you and I and all that is in creation belong to Jesus Christ the King. It is his by right as creator. It is his by donation from the Father who has given him rule over all things. Now this might appear as a flexing of muscles, as a crash, a crass power play. Jesus Christ sends for the donkey. But we need to understand that there is something profoundly theological about our Lord asking them to bring to him a call to this young donkey. Our Lord, you see, is pointing out that he is king. And how does he do so? It is precisely because in the Old Testament book of Zechariah, and in chapter 9 and verse 9, the prophet had predicted that when the king would come to Jerusalem, he would come riding upon a donkey, a young donkey, by the way. Let's hear what Zechariah says in chapter 9 of Zechariah. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Zechariah saw that the king would come to Jerusalem riding on a donkey, and Jesus, having sent for the donkey, is saying in unmistakable terms, I am the anticipated king, the king that has been predicted and prophesied of old. And by riding into Jerusalem on a colt, he was signaling that he is king, the king of God, the one anticipated of old. He comes as a king, but he comes not at the head of an army riding on a white steed or a white horse. He comes on a lowly donkey because you see, though he's king, he's humble of heart, he's gracious. The second sign in the passage that our Lord Jesus Christ is coming as king is seen in the action of the disciples and the people. For in the passage, we read in verse 36, after the disciples had returned with the donkey and they had put their clothes on it and they had set Jesus on the coat, we read in verse 36 that as many as went, as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. It's a sign of his kingship. In May, France inaugurated its youngest president, Emmanuel Macron. And when he came to the Elysee, the equivalent of the White House, but in France, when he came to the Elysee, 
there was a red carpet, a long red carpet laid out for Macron. And he walked the red carpet. It was a sign of honor and respect given to the president. And when the folks who were with Jesus spread their clothes before him, they were in fact performing an ancient version of the red carpet treatment. They were giving Jesus, as one says, the red carpet treatment. In fact, it, this idea of placing clothes before a king occurred in the Old Testament when Jehu was declared to be king. The men of Israel hastily threw their clothes down before him as he ascended the steps. You see, Jesus Christ is king. He receives red carpet treatment. But thirdly, you notice the disciples, not only their actions, but their words. For there is a celebration of Jesus Christ as king. In verse 37 to 38, we read, Then as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and to praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. The disciples begin to praise You know, this notion of praise in the Gospel of Luke is prominent. You just have to go back to the first chapter in the Magnificat. Mary could praise the Lord. She could say, bless the Lord, oh, my soul, and all that is in me, bless his holy name. She could praise God. We see praise even in the angels who were praising and glorifying God in the highest in chapter 2. Throughout this gospel, we see Jesus Christ praising God when he saw Satan fall as lightning from heaven. Praise pervades this book. In, if you just merely look at chapter 18, the end of chapter 18, when Jesus healed the blind man. He followed Christ glorifying God and all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. This, in fact, somebody said that... This, the gospel of John must be seen as a gospel of praise. In fact, the gospel closes with praise. For we find in chapter 24, when Jesus was taken up into heaven, that the disciples, we are told, worshipped him, and they went back to Jerusalem praising God, glorifying God. Well, here we find Jesus Christ comes into Jerusalem. He is descending the Mount of Olives. And the disciples, notice, it is the disciples who are praising. They are praising him. They are praising, first of all, God for him. And they are praising him directly. They are saying, blessed is a king who comes in the name of the Lord. And what they're doing is that they're referring to Psalm 100, uh, 118, one of the Hallels, the Hallels, the Hallelujah Psalms, Psalm 113 to Psalm 118. These were Psalms that were sung on special occasion, like Passover. And here they see Jesus descending the Mount of Olive. And there is great festivity, great celebration. They're saying, Hallelujah, blessed is he 
Blessed is he, but he's king who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, the other gospel writers mention the praise of the disciples. But only Luke specifies that Jesus Christ is king. The disciples call him king. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, in the authority and in the power of God. They're praising him, but they're praising him as king. They're they're intoning the words of the angels in chapter 2 verse 14 uh, when they speak of glory. We find that in their praise they rejoice and praise God. And they're saying peace in heaven and glory in the highest. You see, for Luke then we need to understand that Jesus Christ, the one who comes to Jerusalem, must be understood first of all as the anticipated king. And the one who is worthy of praise. He's worthy of praise. And that is precisely why when the Pharisees who were there in the crowd looked and saw this, they said to Jesus, rebuke your disciples. What they were saying is that you you know that you're not worthy of this praise. Something that the reason why the Pharisees wanted Jesus to rebuke the disciples was because they they were praising him as king might be seen as a seditious act, something that would invoke the anger of the Romans, would come and destroy Israel. But it is more likely that they just thought it was inappropriate for them to be praising Jesus. After all, this is a man who has come from, where Where, where did he come from again? Nazareth. I mean, who, 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 who could think of a king coming from Nazareth? So they're thinking it is inappropriate. And Jesus responds to them. In verse 40, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. You see, for Luke, Jesus who comes to Jerusalem is king. And there is something else that we ought to note. That is precisely this, that salvation must be perceived as a kingly work. That the redemption that Jesus Christ will bring requires the work of a king. Someone who is invested with royal power to become our greatest enemies of sin, of Satan, and of death. It takes a king to save us. In the Old Testament, it was the kings who normally led the armies out to, to war to bring victory. And it is our king who has come. But coming in mercy, coming in grace, coming in humility. And this king, the anticipated king, it is he who deserves worship and praise. The second section in which we find the lament of our Lord over Jerusalem in verses 41 to 44 signifies not that Jesus Christ is the anticipated king who deserves worship, But that he is the rejected king. And that those who reject him do so to their own destruction. There's a sense in which we find a juxtaposition of rejoicing on the side of the disciples and weeping on the part of Jesus. Because as he descends the slope of Mount Olivet, He can see before him with prophetic vision 
the destruction of Jerusalem. And so we are told as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that made for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus then dons the prophetic mantle he is like Jeremiah of all, the weeping prophet. And he's weeping over what he sees as a destruction of Jerusalem. Why will Jerusalem be destroyed? Well, there are those who are historians and ancient historians who study ancient history. And they believe that the treatment that Jesus received was a great affront. For we know from the historical records that when kings would generally visit a city, the leading people, the leading lights, the officials of the city would go out to meet the king. They would go out with an entourage of people from the city and they would receive the king who is coming with great merriment and celebration. But none of this occurs here. And so what they're saying is that our Lord Jesus Christ... When he came, there was a, an egregious breach of social convention. He was not received by the leadership, by the priests, the, the high priests and the officials in Jerusalem. But the reason that Jerusalem would be destroyed is not because they did not follow protocol. It's not because there was a, a breach of social convention. The reason that they, that they would be destroyed is because of their flagrant, intractable rebellion against the king. They did not receive him. They rejected him. In this lament, we see two things regarding the destruction. We see the reason for their rejection. The reason for their, their rejection, Jesus teaches, is first of all, a failure to take note of the significant moment in which they lived. And he expresses this in two ways. He says, if you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that made for your peace. In other words, if you had known that the king has come and has come with peace. But you did not recognize this. At the end of the pericope he says, because you did not know the time of your visitation. What is he saying? He's saying that the reason that they rejected him is because they did not take note of the significant moment in which they lived. It is not that they did not know the particular chronos. The Greek had at least two words for time. One was chronos, which talks about time as it moves chronologically. Time as measured by a clock or a calendar. 
It is not that Jesus is saying you do not know this Kronos. They knew the time of the year, the season of the year. They knew that Tiberius was ruling in Rome for the last 15 years. They knew the time in that sense. But what they did not know was the Kairos. This particular moment, the character of the time in which they lived. They did not know that this was a time of their visitation. Put differently, they did not know that this was a time that God had chosen to visit them. It was a time when God had come. They did not know that this was a special time, a special time of grace, a special time of mercy. And the reason they did not know was not because it was hidden. Surely our Lord Jesus Christ in his preaching and teaching, John the Baptist, the disciples, these were times of upheaval. They had never seen the miracles, they had never heard the preaching that they heard from Jesus. So these were unusual times. But the reason they did not see, because they did not want to see. Jesus says that their ignorance is culpable. In chapter 12, he says, when you see a cloud rising out of the west, immediately you say, a shower is coming, and so it is. And when you see the south wind blow, you say, there will be hot weather, and there is. Hypocrites. You can discern the face of the sky and of the earth, but how is it you do not discern the times? They did not know the significant moment in which they live, that this was a moment of grace. The moment the prophets have been prophesying about and the people of God have been waiting for. The moment of God's favor. They did not know that because they did not wish to know. Their blindness was culpable. Their ignorance was willful and deliberate. The second thing we see is not only the reason, but the result of their rejection. Jesus stressed, or stresses the great peril that there is in rejecting him. Jerusalem, he says, will be besieged, will be surrounded. It will be squeezed, and eventually it will be leveled, so that not one stone rests upon another, and the inhabitants themselves will be killed. You see, Jesus and our response to him determines our destiny. You see, he is the anticipated king who deserves worship but he's also the rejected king whose rejection leads to destruction and this is precisely what occurred in 70 AD when the army of Titus surrounded Jerusalem starved its inhabitants and crucified thousands you see our response to him determines our destiny to reject him is fatal, for it leads to final destruction foreshadowed in the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Two points about the kingship of Christ. He is the king who has been anticipated, who must be worshipped, but he's a king who is rejected, whose rejection leads to destruction. And the final unit verses 45 to 48, we have another story which occurs in the other Gospels. A story of the cleansing of the temple. Here it says regarding Christ's kingship that he is a sovereign king whose word demands utter devotion. 
So Luke tells us that our Lord went to the temple. And he drove out those who sold in it, saying to them, It is written, My house is a house of prayer, but you have made it into a den of thieves. Our Lord Jesus Christ shows that he is supreme and sovereign over the temple. But it is interesting that whereas in the other gospel, we have much details about the cleansing of the temple, Luke does not tarry on the details about how Christ cleansed the temple. What he does is he goes on to explain that Jesus takes over the temple and was teaching there daily. The chief priests, the leading men, the elders were opposed to him and sought to destroy him. But the people, we are told, heard him. And we are told in verse 48 that they were unable to do anything for all the people were very attentive to him. What Luke is teaching us is that Jesus Christ is king. That he is the final revelation. That he is now the temple of God. The true revelation of God comes from Christ who teaches his people. He shows us that the appropriate response is that one should be devoted to the words of this king. I want to point out to you one little note in verse 48. It says that they were unable, that is, the chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people, they were unable to destroy him. Why? For all the people were very attentive to him. This, this expression, very attentive, translates a word that only occurs here in the New Testament. It is much stronger than were attentive. Literally, the word that Luke uses is that all the people, that is those who heard him, who had come with him perhaps from Galilee, those who had come into Jerusalem for the Passover and those who were God's people in Jerusalem, all the people, he says, were hanging on to his words. It isn't that they were just attentive. They were hanging on. That's the word. They were hanging on to his word. They could not get enough of what he said. They listened keenly. They ate up heartily his words. So Jesus Christ, so for Luke, he's saying this, the one who goes to the cross is the king that we have anticipated, the king who deserves our worship. But this one is also the rejected king whose rejection will lead to destruction. He also makes it clear that this king is a sovereign king whose word demands our complete and total devotion. Henry James, or rather Henry Adams, was the grandson of the sixth president of the U.S., John Quincy Adams. And Henry Adams was a historian and a writer. In 1907, Henry Adams wrote a book, The Education of Henry Adams. And he printed about a hundred copies of this book. book. This book had 
wide margins or the end of the book. He left space at the side of the book. And he sent out a hundred copies to friends and people whom he knew, asking them to make comments and jot down notes that they may wish to share with him. Very few responded to Adam's request, but one man did. And he did so in a rather brief and terse way. He wrote in the column of the book, an overrated man and a most overrated book. Our danger here and now in this city is not the danger that we will overrate Christ. Our danger is that we underrate him. Our danger is not that we will think too much of him, which is impossible, but that we think too little of him. And for Luke, our Lord Jesus Christ may be a great prophet, and a great healer, a great teacher. You may even view him as a great revolutionary. All of these may be true, but he's much more. He is, for Luke, the great king. And this king demands worship. The purpose of God is that we may worship him. God seeks worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. And we must also recognize that Jesus Christ is king. And we must praise him for his mighty works. We have been created to live and to worship Christ. And we are to say with the disciples, behold our king. We are to praise him. He comes lowly and riding on a colt, but he is king. And this is the king we must praise for his mighty works. And especially the work of the cross. We need to know that the, the Christ who was in the manger in Bethlehem. The Christ who traveled for 33 years in Palestine. The Christ who went to the cross is king. He is the king of glory. All of this belongs to him. He is the king who has done great and mighty things in saving us from our sins. And our duty is to praise him in private. We are to sing in our showers and in our bathrooms. Praise to him. When we converse with one another, we are to praise him. We are to praise him in private. We are to praise him in public. Because he's worthy of all praise. He is the king, our savior. And if we refuse to praise him, God will even raise up the inanimate creation. Even stones will praise him. But praise he must receive. Because he's deserving of all worship. Christ is king. We must worship him. But for Luke, Christ is king. And you must receive him. This is the tragedy of Israel. The king 
has come and they did not receive him. John says the same thing in John 1 verse 11. He came to his own, but his own did not receive him. But as many as receive him, to them he gave the right to be called children of God to those who believe in him. We are to receive Christ. We cannot worship him as king unless we acknowledge him to be our king and submit to him. In a postmodern world, there is much ado about the autonomy of the self. We determine what is right. We determine morality. We determine truth. We talk about the autonomy of the self. And the struggle of man has always been a struggle for autonomy. But there is no such thing as autonomy. We're under the rule of of the King Jesus Christ. And it is therefore wisdom to submit to him. We are to receive him as king of our lives. This Christ who came to Jerusalem comes to us again and again by the Spirit and in the Word. And he calls us to commit to him. He tells us it is high time to awake from sleep. He tells us to cast off the work of darkness. He tells us we are to buy up the time to redeem the time to make the most of the opportunities in which we live. He tells us we are to submit to his rule, to live for his glory, to go to work and to play and to do everything we do to glorify him. That he must be chief and foremost in our lives. He calls us to come to him, to submit to him, to surrender to him because he's king. And you need to know that this is a decisive moment. That this is a great moment. This is the moment of grace. It is the moment of forgiveness. Where Christ is offering free pardon to all who come. It doesn't matter where you have been and what you have done. There's a pardon for those who seek him. Who acknowledge him as king and surrender to him. Who turn from their sins. Who believe in him. He gives free pardon if you believe. And you're to receive him as king, king of your heart. You're to ask him to forgive your sins. You're to surrender to him, to be baptized, to join a local church, and to live out your life praising him. And listen, you don't have the luxury of telling him to wait. You don't have the luxury of saying to the king, no. Who does that? When the king commands, there's only one thing you can and ought to do, which is obey. And he calls you. You see, if you say no, it means that you think yourself to be superior to the king. This is a moment of grace. There's a great tragedy. There's a great tragedy in missing the moment. You and I may be diagnosed as suffering from cancer. The doctors may prescribe a course of treatment. But we may think that we don't have to follow it. But you know, every day we refuse to do what we are told. We are cementing our death until we come to a point where there is no return. 
And every time you dismiss Christ, you put him off, you seal your own death. Will you bow today? Will you acknowledge Christ as king? Will you give your life to him? Will you say, king of my life, I crown thee now. Thine shall the glory be. Submit to Jesus. Confess your sins. Trust him and receive his forgiveness. If you're a Christian, know that Christ comes to you. He says, behold, I stand at the door and I knock. If any man hears and open up, I will come in and I will sup with him and he with me. And he knocks at the door of your heart, saying, turn aside from lukewarmness and your tepid life and live full tilt, maximum zeal and energy and passion for his glory. He knocks, if any man hears and open up, I will come in. He's saying, live for me and live with all your heart. And finally, my friends, Jesus Christ is king. And the sign that we recognize him as king is not only that we worship him or receive him, but really the sign that he is king is that we obey him. That his word is chief. We must place ourselves under the word of scripture. We must acknowledge that the word of Jesus Christ is life-giving. The implanted word is that which Peter tells us is able to save the soul. This word of Christ is a life-giving word. It's a saving word. It's the word which encourages us and causes us to grow. So therefore, we ought to be devoted to the word. We ought to hang on to the word of Christ for dear life. We ought to make time in our schedule to read scripture and useful books that explain scripture. We ought to make time and Take great sacrifice to hear the preaching of the word regularly. We are not to be like Martha, who was disturbed by many things. Rather, we are to be like Mary, who took her place at the feet of Jesus. And Jesus said, she has chosen the better part, the better portion. We are to be people who are submitted to the word of Jesus Christ. Luke tells us that one day our Lord Jesus Christ was teaching and a woman cried out from the crowd, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts that nursed you. But Jesus responded, Blessed are those who hear the word of God and obey it. Is Jesus Christ your king? He is king. Worship him. He is king. Receive him. He is king. Hear him. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you that you are sovereign and supreme. That you reign in heaven and you reign on earth. And we would ask you this afternoon to lead us on. Show us your majesty, your power, and your grace. And we surrender ourselves to you today. We say, Lord, 
Take our lives. Take our hands and our feet and our eyes. Take all of us. Not a might will we withhold. We give ourselves to you, our King, who loved us and came and died for us and who reigns in heaven for us. So we pray, Lord, break our resistance and our rebellion and rule without a rival in our hearts. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.